Welcome to From Fear to Fire, Secrets to Overcome Fear, Embrace Your Gifts, and Achieve Success. This is the place where real people share real challenges and where you can find a common bond and uncommon wisdom through their journeys to help you move from fear to fire. Make sure to subscribe and give us a nice review on here. And of course, as always, share with your friends the inspiration that you enjoy on the show. Today's quote of the day is by Billy Cox, and it is, focus on the positive, defend your mind from the negative, and expect victory. I think it applies today, and I have a fantastic guest for you. We have Michael O'Brien, who is the chief shift officer at Peloton Executive Coaching. He elevates successful corporate leaders by preventing bad moments from turning into bad days. He shared his inspirational story on the TEDx stage. It's an awesome one. I'll put a link on the show notes for you. With multiple Fortune 500 companies and many podcasts just like this one. So welcome, Michael. How are you today? Great, Heather. I am totally stoked to be with you. And that quote, that's an that's an awesome sauce quote. So I love it. <laughs> I thought it might apply knowing where we're probably going to be going with this today. <laughs> I think you're spot on. I think we're going to go right in that direction, which is really cool. Yeah. So, you know, before I dive into some of my burning questions based on your other talks that that I've uh, found out from you, can you just give us a little background on where you come from? Sure. So I'm a product of upstate New York. So I live outside of New York City right now. And I grew up in Rochester, New York, did the whole winter thing and <laughs> Kodak, Wegmans, the whole thing. But I, I had to get out of Dodge. I had to get somewhere warmer so I could ride my bike. So I went to school in Virginia, found my way up to D.C., uh, met my wife there. We started our family, uh, met my wife through a personal ad before Match.com was the thing. That's a whole story in itself. Oh, that's and, a good one. <laughs> and now we find ourselves in northern New Jersey, where we've been for a lot longer than we ever thought. But it's the place that we call home. And now, as you mentioned in the bio, I try to help leaders prevent those bad moments from turning into bad days. And, you know, you have an amazing story about how you came to learn this lesson. Can you share what happened on your last bad day? Sure thing. It was July 11th, 2001, and I went out to New Mexico for an offsite in July. So that should have been like the first <laughs> warning, like an offsite in the middle of nowhere in New Mexico. But I tried to put the positive on it because that's just how I was hardwired. And I thought, okay, well, this is a chance. A whole bunch of my colleagues were bringing their golf clubs. I was like, I'm going to bring my bike because I was trying to get back into bike racing after mm -hmm. our second daughter was born and I could cross New Mexico off the states I've ridden my bike. So I was like, okay, this could be pretty cool. I could be the smartest Muppet at the meeting. I could go outside, get some vitamin D, be all smug in the meeting as they tried to torture us with PowerPoint. And on the morning of July 11th, I came around to bend and what was barreling right at me was a Ford Explorer going about 40 miles an hour. He had crossed fully into my lane and hit me head on. And I remember... <laughs> Everything about that morning, well, almost everything about that morning, Heather, like the sound of me hitting his grill, the sound of me into the windshield, I still can hear the screech of his brakes and the thought I made when I came to the asphalt below. And I know you have some athletes that listen. So this is this is a question. And since you watch my TED talk, you, you know, I asked this question 
of the EMTs, when I regained my consciousness after being hit initially, I asked them, hey, um, how's my bike? And <laughs> they, um, which is something that only another cyclist can tr truly appreciate. And it was my attempt to cut the tension of the moment with a little humor. And they were like, you need to focus on you. Your bike's fine. Which, by the way, the bike was not fine. The bike was like total, total, uh, total pieces. Like oh. it's, it's a hot, it was a hot mess, but it wasn't even my bike. It was my friend's, but he got a new bike out, out of this whole thing. And <laughs> I remember just trying to will myself not to fall asleep because I thought, if I fell asleep, I would lose control of the situation. And they brought the medevac to bring me to the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque because I, you know, I, I knew my life was in balance, not by what the EMTs were saying, but just the vibe of the moment, the energy of the moment. And when they put me on that helicopter, I made a commitment to myself that if I live, life would be different. I would stop chasing happiness because I was doing a whole bunch of that. I was a typical guy business leader on his hamster wheel grinding it out just following the script that i thought i had to follow and i thought i'd be happy once i got promoted or bought that new car or got whatever all those external merit badges that we go after and that's how that morning began which was the morning that will you know i didn't know it at the time but it was going to change my life uh from that point on wow i mean that is so intense and you hear that I mean, when you say that you heard the, the the sounds, the crunching, and you remember all of that, that's pretty intense. You know, most of the time people will, you, you know, they'll shut down their brains to preserve themselves from, from having to replay that. But you had it all, and it actually probably ended up motivating you and amazing the, the attitude that you had and, and easing the tension of your the people who were rescuing you. It's incredible. Now, let's go back. I'm going to want to delve more into this and your your mindset and all of that. But let's go back. What was life like before your accident? I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, racing a little bit. Tell us a little bit more about what it was like. Yeah. So back in 2001, you know, it wasn't that long ago. We didn't have social media. So if you mm -hmm. if you were like stalking me on LinkedIn, like things look pretty good. Like I had a good gig. I I was making more money than I thought I would make coming out of college. Uh, my daughters were three and a half years old, seven months old at the time, married seven years. It looked like sort of that American dream that I was doing better than my parents and that all, all that jazz. But I had a, a pretty much a singular focus, what leaders were back then. And I thought I had to have all the answers. And I was just following this script, you know, like you work sort of hard in high school. I worked just sort of hard, worked a little bit hard, harder than college. You go out of college, you get your first gig, you might meet someone, you might marry that someone, you start to raise a family, buy a house, climb the corporate ladder, all that jazz. And I thought, well, that's what you do. And when things got stressful, I told myself, well, that's why they pay you, Michael. It's stressful. And I didn't know how to release my stress, even though as a lifelong athlete, I knew that stress would be a killer to performance and, and your mindset was vital. I wasn't necessarily living it in my late teens, early 20s when I began my career. So what was happening at work since I was the boss, I thought I had to have all the answers. And when I didn't, I poured the stress inside of me. And when I would go home, since I was the patriarch and the provider for the family, I thought I had to be all that in a bag of chips and, you know, 
and I wasn't, and I'm still not to this day. But I thought, like, if I couldn't be all that, then then my value was in question. And so I poured my stress inside. So I did a whole bunch of pouring my stress inside and wearing my body armor or mask, pretending that it was all good, like all good on the surface. But inside, I was a, I was a stress puppy. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know how to release it. So yes, I would work out and that'd be a temporary release. But it wasn't really looking at the systematic stress I was carrying around with me. And I was just busy grinding it out. And I do think whether you want to call it universe, God, or whomever, he, she were, they were sending me signals that I didn't have much awareness because I didn't necessarily approach my life and my career with a lot of awareness back then. I was just doing like Mm -hmm. do, do, do hustle, grind, all that jazz. So I think I missed a lot of signs. And then I think what happened, and this is what I choose to believe is that the universe sent me something that I couldn't avoid. It was the ultimate pause button to say, hey, buddy, you keep on ignoring us. We're going to send you something you can't ignore. And this is your chance to sort of shift how you look at life and how you're managing your career and, yeah, just your overall personal life. But I would say on the surface, it looked pretty good. But underneath the water's um, edge, water surface, I was more stressed than I wanted anyone to believe. You know, I so believe that you are not alone. I think uh, uh, all of the the high achievers out there are going to totally resonate with this, myself included, before I had my um, awakening, we'll call it. But I I think that we do. We keep striving and, and not letting anyone else help us, not receiving help, not asking for help, not wanting to have a chink in the armor. And um, I think it can impact us in such a great way. And I love the the fact that you're acknowledging that you were trying to be given signs and you just weren't listening until you couldn't do anything else but listen. I think that's important. Now, the chasing happiness. You even used the the word um, the hamster wheel. I think this is something that many of my listeners can um, can relate to. So I'd love for you to maybe share a little bit more about about that running toward happiness or running away from or what what does that look like for you and and do you have any uh, tips on how to help the listeners if they're going through that? Yeah, so I think it's even I would say it's even more common now in 2020 because mm-hmm. what's added to our lives, which is different than in 2001, is a whole bunch of technology. And I'm not going to throw shade on social media and all that jazz. I think social media has some benefits. Obviously, it has some things that we're concerned about. But what technology has done is it's increased the pace of life and and career. So everything's moving faster. And I think it's starting to change our relationship with with time. Actually, I don't it it definitely is. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the way I would phrase it was like, yeah, I was chasing happiness that in order to be more, I had to do more. Um, But there's also if you're chasing towards something you may also be running away from something. And this was a harder one for me to like look in the mirror and really examine and do like the inner work. I think for, for all of us to achieve the life and career that we want, we got to do a little mirror time. We got to look in the mirror, do some inner work. And I was running away from like how I thought about myself that in order to be extraordinary, I had to do extraordinary things in order to be more, I had to do more and it got into like different emotions that now Brene Brown has made popular, like 
shame and guilt and all that that were not popular things to recognize back then as a guy. Heck, even today, it's not that easy as a as a man, as a male to recognize some of those different emotions. And I didn't have that script back then. I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't even know what I was feeling. Like I, I basically was comfortable with the male emotions of anger and frustration, mm. but vulnerability, like I didn't even know how to spell that back in 2000. <laughs> I, I might, I might have challenges spelling it today. Who knows? <laughs> you know, so, but, but I, I, I was not, living that type of aware life. So I think I was running away from who I who I thought I was when my inner critic got the best of me and then running towards that happiness that I, I would be something, I would be a full version of who I could be if I only could capture more stuff. Yeah. Like that promotion, that car, all those external merit badges, those podium finishes, like all that instead of just being present and being with life and the people around me and the things that I had and focusing on all the things I did have and could do, as opposed to, you know, looking at life through a lens of scarcity of all the things I didn't have. And I wanted to capture that. Once I did, I'd be happy. But then like any vapor finish line, it vanishes over time. And then you go back to chasing in terms of like tips, Heather, for your listeners, one, yes, I think we can set our vision going forward. That vision going forward is it, it's good for our GPS system, but a lot of predictions about the future are often wrong. And if we were really great, we would all go to Vegas and probably <laughs> bet on whomever. But I think it's good to have it. But I think what's more important is having your values really solidified because those help you with your boundaries and your decision making going through life. And I also think it's valuable to pause more and connect with our breath more to slow everything down. You know, it, we do feel like we're, we don't have enough time for self-care. We don't have enough time for reflection, but we're always, we always some, sometimes find the time to drop everything for those 11th hour fire drills, which could have been prevented if we had more intentionality, more thoughtfulness. You can say just maybe a little bit more time with our breath to be like really mindful about how we want to approach our career in life, as opposed to just like, reacting to it um so i would say understanding your vision where you want to go understanding your values what's going to guide you on that journey uh who's in your peloton that's my vernacular for your personal board of directors or tribe like who's around you you can lean on and then trying to connect with your breath more as a way to bring more awareness into your life I, I absolutely love your list and I had no idea what I was asking for when I asked it, but I am so happy that I did because it, it's so it's in alignment with what I believe and what I teach. And, um, you know, as a fellow person who uses her body a lot with a dance background and, and, um, how that impacts your mind as well as your mind impacting your body. I think the breath is a, is a great one. And I love coming from values because that's going to guide you in those last minute decisions that we make on a minute by minute basis. You know, you can have your vision, but when it comes down to something coming up for you, it's great to have that strong value base so that, you know, 
what the answer is, what decision you should you should make in that moment. These are fantastic. Now, did those help you make your shift or was it something else that that helped you after your last bad day and shifting to where you are now? So those were elements of my recovery. But the big moment, my big shift, because the early phases of my recovery, it wasn't happy ho. It was I was not I was not living the life I thought I was going to live. I, like I made that promise. I would, you know, stop chasing happiness and life would be different. But the early phases of my recovery, I went dark pretty quickly because the doctors painted this picture that I was going to have a life of pain and suffering and limitations and dependency. Mm-hmm. And that, that shattered my identity. Like the identity I knew sort of as an executive who was stressing out and on his hamster wheel. Like I knew that, like that, that devil, you you know, is sometimes better than the devil you don't. (laughs) And they were like, Hey buddy, your life is going to radically change. And you're probably never going to ride your bike again. And you're going to probably walk with a lot of limitations. And so then I was like, well, who am I going to become if I don't know who I am? Mm -hmm. And then eventually they flew me back from New Mexico. I had some more surgeries here in New Jersey. And I had a moment when I realized that if I was going to get my body right, because I wasn't making the type of progress I wanted to make as like a type A personality. I wanted to, I wanted to be healthier faster. And I know many of your listeners can totally Mm -hmm. appreciate that. Like I just want to be better now. (laughs) And I knew enough going back to my athletic background around mindset. And, and I knew I had to get my mind right before I could get my body right. And I knew my mind wasn't right. And it was just sort of intuitive that I, I thought I had to get my mind quiet because I had so much stuff swirling around in my head. And when you're in the hospital for as long as I was, there's not much to do. I didn't have the capacity to read. Like I had a a pretty significant concussion. So I I couldn't keep my focus and read that well. Like I could do well with Us Magazine, but Mm -hmm. People Magazine (laughs) was out of the question because People (laughs) Magazine has actual articles and Us has pictures. So I could do well with pictures, but not with a lot of copy. Mm. And so I knew I just had to get quiet. And that's when I began what was the start of my mindfulness practice. That's when I started figuring out, well, values matter. And then I was like, well, who's in your Peloton? Because that came out during my recovery. I thought my medical team was like my medical Peloton that was bringing me towards the finish line, the destination of better health. Mm -hmm. And so I worked on all those things. And then I let go of the comparison. I let go of that comparisonitis. And I just decided to be and be present with my moment. And I really do credit my accident and recovery of helping me get to the executive suite in my company. I got there pretty quickly after my accident became one of the youngest guys on our executive team. And I was responsible for close to $4 billion and a team of close to a thousand. And I, I know this, Based on how I was functioning prior to my accident, I would have never made it to that level of the company mm-hmm. and, until I, I had to learn some of the lessons I needed to learn and also apply those and, yeah. and to show up at work with a different script, my own script. So I made a commitment not to like quit my job and go off and do a whole bunch of speaking. I went back to my job, but I decided to go back to my job with my values clearly defined and a different script that I was going to go back to work on my own terms. And if work couldn't help me honor those, then I was going to leave. And then eventually 
after 13 years there and sort of climbing the corporate ladder but differently. In 2014, that's when I made the decision to do the work I'm doing today because I knew my values could no longer be honored at that company. Mm. You know what I, I, I absolutely love is that you said something that's that's a little hard for, for people to maybe swallow if they're in the moment of it. But for those of us who have been on the other side and can look back to something in their past that taught them the lessons, we totally get it, right? So that that I needed to have this challenge in order to learn this lesson so I could become the person that would allow me to do this thing. And that that is huge. But if you're in the moment of the challenge, um, it's it's exactly what you need to hear, but it's often what you don't want to hear. Like if they're in the revolting stage of, well, you know, why me? Uh, that's a really hard thing to hear. But one of the things that I love about it is that the faster we can get that lesson, the faster we can understand that, um, the, the sooner we can learn it and move forward and become, right? But when we get stuck in that morass of negativity, um, some people never get it and some people just take longer than they would like. So what you're saying right now is super valuable for people to, to hear and take in and really embrace. I think it's fantastic. Um, I want to make a shift to, right, my, cool. <laughs> to my language of fire. So um, do you have some suggestions on how other people can find their fire? You know, I mean, does it, is it like, you know, throwing some gasoline on it or is it a slow burn? Like what, what do you think? So, I, so there's a, a combination of like some gasoline and a slow burn. I think the gasoline can get this fire started, but I think change happens over time with that daily discipline it can be step by step uh, pedal stroke by pedal stroke in my language i think as we look to create the lives that we want to create we can have a moment and the moment doesn't have to happen to us it could happen to someone else like someone could be listening to this and say hey you know what i want to just i want to check myself and see am i living life in alignment and then taking the steps so that could be some of the gasoline, just listening to our conversation, Heather. And then the step-by-step slow burn is what we're going to do tomorrow to make a better tomorrow, to make a better tomorrow, to make a better tomorrow. And one of the things I always love to ask people is like, when what do people come to you for? And you know, the other people that may be in your network or your Peloton, what do they see in you that become you know, that, that maybe your uh, superpowers and your strengths? And I think like really finding your fire can be through the lens or the eyes of other people. Like, what do you see in me? Because sometimes we get so close to who we are. We don't see our goodness. We don't see our awesome sauces, I would say. So asking other people, like, what do you see in me that gets you motivated, that gets you inspired? And what do people come to you about? And I think a lot of those building blocks, those ingredients can can really develop into a a purpose, if you will. Maybe it's also passion. Then you have a spark moment where you're like, all right, this is a time to shift. And then it becomes the daily discipline. But along the way, having someone alongside you who is running alongside you, dancing, cycling, that can hold you accountable to where you want to get to. In, In more of a power with mentality, 
versus some of the hierarchy that's still in our corporations that's power over. So I, I love the whole sense of accountability and responsibility, but I want to do it together. I want, you know, because it, it, and it's a two way street. And I think we can all find our fire in that way when we build more of a community and we hear what our community thinks and goes to us for. Oh my gosh, this is great. I totally agree with you. We need that. And I love the power with versus power over. That's incredibly powerful. Um, and I, what I think that also stands out for me is when you know, you're know you asking that question, what is it that, that draws you to me? What do you think that I do really well? Because for the the people that I work with, I think that oftentimes they they undervalue their gifts because it comes easily to them, not realizing that it does not come easily to everyone. And so that's a really good suggestion to ask and say, how do you see me and what what draws you and where are the the, the talents? Because we sometimes don't see them within ourselves. Oh, p- perfect. I, th- yeah. I think Heather, we get in our own way so much and then we don't, we don't have the ability to see our goodness. And mm-hmm. sometimes you just need to take a step back and say, Hey, what do you see in me? I like, I need that pickup. I need a little bit of that inspiration, motivation from an outside perspective. And I think that's, that's why it's so important to have a good network of people around you where it's, again, it's a two way street. It's just not one way you're all supporting each other and really developing that connection because we we do as human beings we want we want to feel safe and we want a sense of belonging mm-hmm. and i think in today's world where we're even more connected quote unquote through social but we're also largely disconnected and i think there's a real thirst out there maybe as we start this new decade for realness and real connection and people that have our back that can you know that you can grab my wheel and I'm going to grab your wheel and we're going to do this together. Yeah. I think there's a real power in that. And even if it's a small group, that's okay. The, the size of the group doesn't matter. It's, I think it's the connectivity and the trustworthiness within that group that matters uh, more so than anything else. I agree with you completely. Now, I know just based upon our conversation and what I know about you is that you got back on the bike. Now there were doctors that told you that you would never do that. So I guess the question is, you know, why did, was it so important to you to do and how did that, how did that come to be? Yeah. Most of the doctors that saw me were like, you're not going to get back on the bike because what they did is they used other cases Mm -hmm. of other people to say, here's the prognosis. And for me, it was really more of a sense of like, I just wanted to feel normal again. You know, I didn't have that identity. So it's like, let me gravitate towards what's normal. Being on my bike, which is something that I fell in love with the very first ride, the very first ride uh, off of training wheels. I was like, this is like the most beautiful invention ever. I could go anywhere. I had independence and I just wanted to feel normal again. So being back on the bike was in some ways a external merit badge type of thing like I can accomplish something but for me it was a sense of normalcy and independence Mm -hmm. that the bike still to this day represents that freedom the independence I could go anywhere I can explore I can see things through a different lens because you're just going slower on a bike than say traveling in a car and so we had a moment where I went through several 
very difficult surgeries and a whole bunch of hours of PT. And my physical therapist, she knew I was well enough to get back on the bike. I had enough flexibility in my legs and extension of my legs at that point through a lot of like pain and suffering to get back on the bike. But I was hesitant. And she was like, hey, you can't get back on the bike. You can't come back to rehab for therapy until you get back on the bike. And I was so irritated with her. I was like, you can't do that. I'm the patient. I have health insurance. Because because doing rehab was fun. It was like, you know, having a personal trainer. Although mm. I was pre-medicating with Percocet before my therapy because the <laughs> therapy was that painful. Mm. And so she pushed my buttons. I think sometimes you, ha- you have to have people in your life They'll push your buttons. And she knew exactly what she was doing. She was pushing my buttons. I went home. I complained to my wife. And then my wife looked at me and she said, well, when are we going to go get on the bike? I go, we're going to go tomorrow. But I'm not happy about it. (laughs) And I I stormed upstairs to change and take a shower after therapy. And that next day we went to an industrial park where they have bike races on Thursday nights, the races I used to do. And I took a few laps. I was really wobbly. My left leg is permanently shorter than my right leg now. So my balance was off, but I, I, w- I was having so much fun. I, I felt like a kid again. I was going terribly slow, but I didn't care. And then I decided to venture off on the main road, a road that I had ridden my bike on countless times before. So I turned left out of the industrial park and within about 50 feet, I could feel something coming up behind me. And I look around and there the universe or whomever sent me another white SUV. This one though was bigger. It wasn't a Ford Explorer. It was a Ford uh, exhibition. And I was like, like I I was like universe. I said a couple other choice things. I I go, you have like a really warped sense of humor. And I just held on for dear life. I grabbed those handlebars as tight as I could. I held my breath. I closed my eyes, which, you know, for any cyclist, I wouldn't recommend doing any of those things. And then it passed me and I opened my eyes, I eased up on the grip, I took a breath and I, and I realized, okay, you can do this. And one of the reasons why I was hesitating to get back on the bike wasn't a fear of traffic. It was a fear of seeing how far I had to go to get back to health. It's almost like as you're trying to lose weight, you know, you don't necessarily want to get on the scale all the time because you're like, I think I've lost weight. The jeans are fitting a little bit better. They're a little bit looser and definitely lost weight. And so, but getting on the scale is that objective measure to really determine have you or haven't you lost weight. And getting back on the bike for me was that metric to say, hey, how healthy are you? And I knew I had made a lot of progress, but I was a little nervous. Actually, I was a lot nervous to see how much progress I still had to make to get back to my old self, if you will. And so that was my hesitancy, but my therapist pushed me and that was the first bike ride of, of many. And now I still ride and I still race and every day I get to ride is a fantastic day. Whether I have no flats or a ton of flats, I just, I think it's a testament to what's possible with mindset and community and resilience and awareness and all those different wonderful ingredients that sort of make up the the chili or the stew that I call my last bad day journey. 
Oh my gosh, Michael, I love this because you don't have to be an athlete to get of all of the amazing lessons that you learned and that you're sharing with our listeners today. They don't have to go through a last bad day. They can learn from what you're saying about your experience and be able to be better leaders, better, um, more accepting of themselves. Uh, and I, I think that I'm inspired and I'm sure they will be, you know, so I'd love for you to share um, how anyone might be able to get in contact with you, your website, or I know you've got um, a, a, a nice offer for your your book. Um, so can you share some of that information for them? I'll also put the links on the show notes as well. Sure thing, Heather. And thanks again for having me on. You know, I way back when I was reluctant to share my story until someone said, you know, you're being selfish for not sharing the story because I'm right there with you. I, what I'm hoping is that people don't go through what I went through. I hope they hear a little bit of this, grab a pearl or two, and make some shifts in their life and career. So the best way to reach me is my website, which is michaelobrienshift.com. There they can pick up a, a free copy of my latest book, which is called My Last Bad Day Shift. In it, I give them really practical tips that they can do in the morning during work or after work to prevent those bad moments from turning into a bad day. And if they use the coupon code SHIFT, it takes um, 25% off the shipping and handling. So it's free. Um, The reader just has to pick up the shipping and handling. And it's a really good short read, but filled with a lot of goodness to help manage our stress and create some work-life balance and all that jazz. That's fantastic. And everyone out there who's who's picking up this information um, audibly, it's the Michael O'Brien and Brian is B-R-I-E-N shift.com. Correct, Michael? Did I do that right? Yep. yep. Yeah. There's a, the awesome. people spell it with I-A-N. We, we still love them, but we, we also let them know they're spelling O'Brien wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I say that with a big smile on my face. I do. I'm sure you say it with love. Yes. Um, Do you have any uh, parting words of wisdom for everyone today? Well, I would go back to like what we talked about earlier, just to breathe more. I have something that I pulled out of my recovery called grabbing a PBR, which is not the PBR that most people think of, (laughs) but it's, it's the pause, breathe and reflect type, you know? So just take moments in between meetings before big conversations to grab a PBR, just pause breathe simple box breathing technique works and just think about how you want to show up next and i think it's a really wonderful way of just hitting hitting the reset and so you can be present in the moment Mm -hmm. and so you can you can see and appreciate all that you have around you and again it's been great being with you heather and your listeners thanks again for having me on Thank you so much. It's really inspirational story, and I appreciate your time and energy today, Michael. And thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.